Hey, thank you for listening to this week's homily. Um, I just wanted to give a little bit of context before uh, you give before we jump right into the homily. Um, this week kicks off Catholic Schools Week, and uh, since we at St. Hillary have been hosting Holy Savior Catholic School on our campus uh, since Hurricane Ida, um, we invited them, uh, their faculty, their staff, their students to be at our eleven o'clock mass. Um, so if you hear little voices in the background or you hear references to uh, to school or to anything like that, that's what it is. Um, um, we have our the, the parents and the kids and the faculty and the staff that are there on top of our normal parishioners. Um, so thank you for listening. I uh, just wanted to give you a little bit of context before diving in. All right. Well, God bless you. Hope you enjoy it. And uh, may the Lord be with you this week. Good morning. <laughs> it's like a button you get to push. It's so much fun. Um, today, uh, I... As we, as we break open the scripture today for our homily, um, I want to first begin by saying uh, I have one sister, and my one sister is six years older than me, right? So I'm 32, and uh, I'm going to make sure to broadcast, she is almost 30, she is 38 years old, and I want to make sure everybody hears, my sister is 38 years old. She likes to lie about her age, but she is 38 years old, Okay. So me and my sister being six years apart, when I was born, she was six years old, right? So my sister was six years old, and when I was born, there is a video, old school camcorder, right, like VHS tape, y'all don't know what that means, but it's okay, um, old school camcorder, she, there is a video of me as a baby in my sister's arms while she's sitting in a rocker, and she's singing to me about being the best little brother in the world. It's the sweetest thing in the world. It's a lie, but it's the sweetest thing in the world. The funny part was, if you fast forward about five years, the last thing my sister would have ever thought about doing was sitting in a rocker, holding me, and singing how I was the best little brother in the world. You know why? Because five years later, she was trying to beat me over the head with my own arm. I know none of y'all, any of us that have siblings, ever felt anything like that, especially about a younger sibling, like a little brother, like who every time my sister got in trouble, I'd go up to my mom and dad and be like, I'll never do what Jackie did, and then run off and play. I know no one ever felt bad about a little brother who's a pain in the butt, huh? No one ever would have, huh? I think part of the reason why I got kids pointing at each other. This is really funny. (laughs) But part of the reason why, I think my sister and I, as we grew up, we started to fight a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a lot more, is because we were around each other so much. Right? We were so familiar with each other, I knew the buttons I had to push that would really aggravate her. And she knew what she could do to me that would really aggravate me. And we were okay with pushing those buttons and aggravating each other. Now again, I know we're outcast and we're different and we, there's none of y'all, especially our kiddos, that would ever purposefully aggravate your brother or your sister, right? Never. <laughs> That's my sister. Okay, she tell her she got to go to confession. It's okay. But I think part of, and I think this happens in a lot of places in life, where we're so familiar with somebody that they start to aggravate us. They start to get on our nerves. There's an old saying, familiarity breeds contempt, right? That when we're familiar with someone or something, 
all of a sudden, we start seeing all the dents in their personality. All their imperfections. When I was, in, when I was a senior at Central, um, getting ready to graduate, me and my best friend from high school, we decided we were both going to LSU. We both had our acceptance letter. We were both going for engineering. We were both very excited. We decided that we were going to live together in the dorms. And I remember, like, we were all fired up. We knew what we were going to do. We knew where we were going to live. We were already talking about football games and having fun on these days and doing these things and all these other things. Notice none of that was studying. It's okay. Um, but, like, we had all these things, all these plans of how we were going to have a great time for our first year at LSU. We were looking forward to it. And it was about two weeks before graduation. I was in one of my classes, and my teacher looks at me, and he says, y'all two are living together for college, huh? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I hope you didn't like that friendship. What? He said, let me tell you how this goes when you live with your best friend. He says, your best friends when you move in, and you're in your best friends, and you're around each other all the time, and then your best friends, and like, it's really good, because you got the same interests, and you get the same friend groups, and you, and you build a lot of the same things, and like, you go into the same stuff, and, and you're really, really close. And you stay best friends, and then... What happens is, is that you're never not around the person. Because you're never not around the person, jealousy and, and judgment and all these things kind of creep in until no more friendship. Now, I remember after my first year of college, me and my best friend, my roommate, we, who were convinced because we were 18 years old and we had figured out the world and ah, that ain't going to be us. At 19 years old, we didn't talk for six months. Because exactly what that, profess, that, exactly what that teacher told us happened. And we were familiarity bred contempt. We need to just get away from each other for a while. And sure enough, we did. And six months later, we showed up, we met up for something, and it was like we were best friends all over again. Because we just got away. Familiarity breeds contempt. When we're too familiar with something or someone, what can happen is, is that it can hurt, actually hurt the relationship or hurt what they're trying to tell us or hurt. Whenever, it, it's, it's the same thing for working for somebody that you know and you're a friend for or you're a friend with. Some people might be sitting here thinking, <laughs> you just explained the first five years of my marriage because I got stuff to tell you about my husband, right? Familiarity can breed contempt. The reason why I say that is I think it's a perfect way for us to enter into today's gospel. Because today's gospel, whether we realize it or not, what's happening, Jesus is very, very familiar to the community that he's preaching to. Last week, we heard the beginning of Jesus' first sermon. And what happened in the temple, I mean, what happened in the synagogue was that Jesus unrolls the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he reads out, The Spirit of God is upon me to bring glad tidings to the, to the Lord, uh, to, the, to the world, and, and to proclaim liberty to captives. And it's a, mess, it's a sign, it's a, it's a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And Jesus reads this scripture to the people. Then at the time for the homily, or at the time for the sermon, everybody sits down, and Jesus looks at the people, and it's, it's a very, very short thing. It's what starts our gospel today. Jesus just looks at them and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled, and you're hearing it. 
He's talking to the people that he grew up with. He's talking to the community that knows him best. And he's saying, I am the coming promised Messiah. Their reaction is exactly what you would think. The first thing they say, isn't that Joseph's son? Like, I know him. We grew up with him. He played with my kids when he was growing up. He, I coached him in Little League. Like, all those little things, right? Like, they were very, very extremely familiar with who Jesus of Nazareth was because he grew up with him. And because they're so familiar with him, they can't believe right away what Jesus is saying. It would be like me coming and saying, I'm the Messiah. And you'd be like, no, you're not your yogi son. That's scary, but, but that, that's what it is. That's the moment. It, it's Jesus talking to his people, his town, his place, and saying, I'm the Messiah. And their first thought is, prove it. In the gospel, they don't have a chance to voice that sense of prove it. And Jesus looks at him and says, what you're going to say to me he calls his shot. He calls it out while they're thinking about it. He says, what you're going to say to me is very simple. Do the miracles that you have done in Capernaum in our midst, and then we'll believe you. That's what they're saying. Do the things that you have done in Capernaum. All the miracles. He was doing healings and preaching. Do those things here, and then I'll believe. And what ends up happening in this scripture today, we might miss it, but from that challenge to Jesus, his response makes these people enraged with fury. They go from prove it to wanting to kill him, to wanting to throw him off of a cliff. What does he say that flips the switch and sets them off? We may, we may miss it, we may not know exactly what he's getting at, but I think if we dive into Jesus' response to this invitation of prove it, it'll speak to us, and I think it could speak to us right where we are today. Jesus, Jesus quotes two scriptures from the Old Testament. He uses two stories from the Old Testament to really answer that, that challenge of prove it to the people. Now, don't do me a favor, because these stories, both of them have very, very odd names of people, and what can end up happening, and I know this as a Catholic, right? When we hear a weird name, we shut it off. We go on autopilot, right? So do me a favor, just bear with me, and let's, let's analyze these two things, these two moments, to get a better understanding and appreciation of Jesus' response and the way he responds to this challenge, okay? The first one that Jesus talks about, he says, there was a widow in Sidon. S-I-D-O-N. Sidon is this area that was outside of the Jewish community. Sidon was an area where there were not Jews that lived there. Rather, there were Gentiles. Now, the Jews were the chosen people of God. They had walked through the entire Old Testament with God. God leading them, bring them out of slavery, Moses, Abraham, all of the early, all of the early teachings that we know of the Jewish faith, that these were God's chosen people. 
And Elijah, who was a prophet of the Jewish people, went to a widow in Gentile land. And when he did, she was starving. There was a famine that had come in into this area, and the famine was caused because the Jewish people were not living a life faithful to God. But there was a famine. And the, the Elijah, the prophet, comes to this woman and says, can you cook me a little something to eat while I'm traveling? And the woman's response to him, the, this widow's response to Elijah is to say, I, I, I can't. I only have a little bit left for me and for my son. That's it. After we eat this, we're going to starve to death. And Elijah says, I am, I, I'm a messenger. I'm a prophet of the Lord. If you give to me, you will not starve. She makes a cake for him. He's able to eat. And the report is, is that for three years, her oil, she uses her last little bit of oil. For three years, her oil and her flour don't run out. It's a sign of faith from a person who was not even a Jew. Not one of God's chosen people. But a sign of faith from a Gentile who gave everything that she had to the prophet of the Lord. And it was a miracle that took place in her life. That's the first one. The second story that Jesus uses in talking about this and that, that, that just absolutely enrages and angers the community he's talking to, the second one he references is a man named Naaman. Naaman was a Syrian. Syria is not in Israel. Syria, again, is a Gentile area. And Naaman was a powerful man in the Syrian army. The thing about Naaman is that Naaman was also a leper. And in the, in the Jewish community, a leper was somebody who was thrown out, somebody who was not worthy. There was probably some kind of sin that he was dealing with, and that's why it was showing up. But Naaman, a Gentile, comes to Elijah's follower, like Elijah's heir apparent, Elisha, and comes to be healed. And when he comes to be healed, Elisha tells him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. He does, and he emerges clean. His skin, as the scripture would say in the book of Kings, his skin like that of a baby. So he's made new. He's made clean. Now why on earth with these two examples, this widow from Sidon and Naaman the Syrian, why would these two things enrage the community? Because in both cases, it was a Gentile person who received the gift of God, the healing that they need, the miracle. And in both cases, they came to God with an overwhelming amount of faith, believing that God, that Yahweh, would heal them. And in the Jewish world, those two stories were seen as indictments on the lack of faith of the Jewish people. Because there were plenty of people during this famine that were starving that were also Jews. There were plenty of people that were, had leprosy 
and were also Jews. But the two prophets went to these two people outside of the Jewish community because they had faith. And the Jewish people did not. So when Jesus responds to this challenge of prove it in the synagogue that morning, what's actually happening is when he uses these two stories, he says, I will not do a miraculous work because of your lack of faith. Hometown boy in his hometown synagogue talking to the people that knew him, that watched him grow up, And he looks at them and says, you're no better than the worst time in the history of our religion. He uses it as an indictment to say, where is your faith? And they want to throw him off of a cliff for it. Mother Teresa is quoted as saying, and it's one of the most powerful quotes I've ever seen, Mother Teresa is quoted as saying, in our life with the Lord, in our religious life, in our spiritual journey, as a disciple of God, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we are not called to be successful. Rather, we are called to be faithful. We are not called to be successful. We are called to be faithful. And if we have a question of what that looks like, we don't have to look any further than a crucifix. Because by worldly standards, he lost. If we're judging by worldly success, if we're judging by the the power that Jesus wielded, the influence that he had, it looks like from a worldly perspective that Jesus Christ lost. Because he was beaten, he suffered, and he was killed in a way to embarrass him. From a worldly standpoint, he looks like he was pretty unsuccessful. But if we look at it from from a perspective of faith, Even when Jesus at his hardest time in the agony in the garden is praying and and asking God to let this cup pass because I don't know if I can do it. And his humanity is pouring out because he knows what he's about to go through. From an act of faith, he still says, but not my will, but your will be done. Now Father, that's great. Father, that's wonderful. All of that, wow, I, I didn't realize he was saying all that in today's gospel. Not going to lie, the names kind of made me tune out. Like, I'm a good deal. But what does it have to do with us today? God works a whole lot better to, through us when we are more concerned about being faithful than if we're concerned about worldly success or checking all the boxes. So God wants to work through us in our faith. God wants to work through us in a way that's more powerful, more all-encompassing than just 
being successful. Like having this kind of deal with Jesus that says, all right, Lord, I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to put the money in the collection and I'm going to give you a little bit of my time and I'm going to do what I have to do and that's fine and that's great, but whenever I need something, I expect it. That there's this kind of exchange like a vending machine, right? I put my little bit in, hit my button, and I should get the grace that I want. I should get the healing that I want. That sickness shouldn't bother me and my family. That, that, that job loss shouldn't happen to me. Because I do these things, God, and where are you to help me out? There's this kind of exchange kind of mindset with Jesus. Or on the other side, we can have this kind of checkboxing, uh, yeah, checkbox kind of mentality with the Lord. Well, you know what? I go to Mass, and I pray my rosary, and I even go to daily Mass sometimes, and I show up in the chapel sometimes, and I got all my devotions and all my things, and those are all wonderful and great and beautiful, but the second that I leave from the parking lot, I am cursing the person who just cut me off in traffic. Like, no, it's no business. That somebody let the light turn red, and I could have got through on that yellow light if they would have just turned. Or I walk into the new, the, the new uh, Italian restaurant in Raceland, and there's five people in front of me, and I walk in, and I roll my eyes, and go, son of a... Right? Our faith is not about a checkbox. Our faith is not about looking a certain way or doing a certain thing. Our faith is much more all-encompassing than that. What our faith is not as a success is this exchange with God. Our faith, with, our faith is not meant to be just, I did the things, I checked the boxes. I even send my kids to Catholic school and that's wonderful and that's awesome, but I don't practice it myself. It's missing the point. But what is faith? As we start, as we come into Mass today, as we come to the Eucharist today, as we come to begin a, a, a new, a life of faith with our Lord, as we do every time we come to Mass, our faith is about allowing God in. And coming from the standpoint of the biggest thing, the biggest problem in the world, the biggest thing that needs to be fixed in the world, the biggest issue that there is, begins right here in my heart. It's not who's in the White House. It's not who's in charge of X, Y, and Z. It's not the new movement of the, of the month. But it begins right here in the human heart. When we invite God to dwell in our heart, oftentimes when we hear that kind of language, the, the first image that comes to my mind is a house. And oftentimes when we imagine God coming into our life, we can say, God, I got a leak and I need you to fix it. And God comes in and he says, okay, I want to fix the leak. And then after he fixes the leak, we're like, great, you can leave. That's good. That's good. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm trying to build a place to dwell. So like, it's not just going to be about fixing a leak, but we're going to straight Chip and Joanna Gaines this thing. Like, we are going to blow out some walls, put some shiplap on the wall. Like, we're going we're gonna to break this open so that it's the most suitable place to dwell. Because the biggest renovation, the biggest problem in the world today starts first and foremost in the human heart. My addictions, my struggles, my judgments, 
my sin. That's the first place that God wants to work. So often, the same way as I started the homily, familiarity breeds contempt. We can be so familiar with Jesus that we don't invite him in. That we don't allow him to come and be with us and in our hearts always. Today as we approach Mass, let us not approach it from the standpoint of some kind of worldly success with our faith. Let's not approach our faith as some kind of a checklist that we have to make sure we do all the things at the times. But instead, let us approach our faith as a loving God, eternal and all-powerful, who wants to very simply dwell with you. Familiarity can breed contempt. Let's let the Lord in where we can reverence him.